Welcome to our podcast for College Catholics, where we discuss faith and spirituality from a Catholic perspective. I'm Father Patrick. Our human passions are a part of our human nature, part of our human being, and they play a key role in our daily psychological, moral, and spiritual life. In the previous episode, I reflected about the human passions, how they affect our decisions, and how we should guide them and train them to help us in our daily choices. Our passions are certain movements proper to the sensitive part of our being. You could describe them as feelings or emotions, but they are more uh, properly defined as movements of our sensitive appetite that incline us to act or not to act with regard to some object, thing, or event that is perceived to be good or evil. Now, they are natural components of our human psyche. They are uh, God-given natural inclinations, which are a sort of connection between the life of the senses and the life of the mind or spirit. In themselves, they are neither good nor evil. Now, they are are good insofar as they are God-given elements of our nature. Of course, they have been affected and disordered by original sin, and therefore, they can be disordered or exaggerated in their reactions. But they can become uh, morally good or evil insofar as they engage the will and the mind. For example, if your will consents to a disordered passion, you may fall into sin. And you can exacerbate that passion more than it should be. In this case, uh, because of your consent, you can fall into sin, and the passion can become a source of temptation and sin. On the other hand, If a passion moves you to perform something that is good and your will consents to it, then that passion becomes an encouragement to do what is good and you have trained it to lead you toward good things. So to summarize, passions can be taken up and help grow in virtue or they can become perverted by by vices. In that sense, they can become more ordered or orderly, or they could become more vicious or disordered due to their interaction with our will. Your holiness, in this sense, consists not only in doing occasionally what is good, but bringing the whole of your being to be more under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, to be more like Christ. And this should include not only your mind and your will, but also your passions, your natural inclinations and your emotions. All those things should be more and more guided by the grace of God. Now, in the previous episode, we saw an example from the Confessions of St. Augustine of how the unrestrained passions can lead the person more and more into sin. It was the case of uh, Alypius, a good friend of St. Augustine, and how as he saw the gladiators in the circus, he became completely caught up by his passions and started enjoying or lusting after the brutality of the fights among gladiators. So today, as I promised last time, I'd like to share an example of how the passions can lead to virtue and even heroic actions. This example involves a soldier who is not a saint, but in whose actions we can discern the passions of love, of fear, sadness, courage, and hope. We can also see the description of passions in St. Joan of Arc, and how they helped her in the accomplishment of her mission. 
all these are connected to very clear and virtuous decisions, the passions, right? Uh, and they led St. Joan of Arc to guide and orient his uh, this particular soldier's passions from good to better, and finally to give his life, uh, he gave his life for a very holy cause, uh, the cause of St. Joan of Arc, the cause of God, and the cause of France at that time. To give you a little bit of context, St. Joan of Arc was born in Don Remy, France, around 1412, and died at the stake in Rouen, France, 1431. She's a famous uh, French peasant girl who freed France from the grasp of the English by leading the French armies in battle. Now, during one of her military campaigns before the Siege of Orléans, uh, she was on her horse reviewing the troops. And while the soldiers were marching before her, she saw a man that was tied, stretched on a cart, as if he were going to be executed or something. So she asked about the man and was told that it, he was uh, charged with desertion, found guilty, guilty, and would soon be executed. St. Joan asked to speak with him, and here is the story, which is taken from the life of St. Joan of Arc, written by Mark Twain. Which, uh, just to understand the way it is narrated, uh, the, this story is based on the recollections written by one of the knights that accompanied Joan of Arc. So, I am not a voice actor, but I will do my best to put some intonation and uh, life into the story to make it more meaningful. So I hope you like it. Here it goes. Joan was completely armed except her head. She was looking about 15 years old. The sight of soldiers always set her blood to leaping, and it lit the fires in her eyes and brought the warm, rich color to her cheeks. In the train of carts laden with supplies, a man lay on top of the goods. He was stretched out on his back, and his hands were tied together with ropes, and also his ankles. Joan signed to the officer in charge. He rode up and saluted. What is he that is bound there? she asked. A prisoner, my general. What is his offense? He is a deserter. What is to be done with him? He will be hanged, but it was not convenient on the march, and there was no hurry. Tell me about him. He is a good soldier, but he asked to leave to go and see his wife, who was dying, he said, but it couldn't be granted, so he went without leave. Meanwhile, the march began, and he only overtook us yesterday evening. Overtook you? Did he come of his own will? Yes, it was of his own will. He, a deserter, name of God, bring him to me. The officer rode forward and loosed the man's feet and brought him back with his hands still tied. What a figure he was, a good seven feet tall and built for business. He had a strong face. He had an unkempt black hair which showed up a striking way when the officer removed his helmet from him. For weapon, he had a big axe in his broad leather belt. Standing by Joan's horse, he made Joan look smaller than ever, for his head was about on a level with her own. His face was profoundly melancholy. All interest in life seemed to be dead in the man. 
Jones said, Hold up your hands. The man's head was down. He lifted it when he heard that soft, friendly voice, and it seemed that he would like to hear it again. When he raised his hands, Joan laid her sword to the bonds. But the officer said with apprehension, Ah, madam, my general, he is under sentence. Yes, I know. I am responsible for him. And she cut the bonds. They had lacerated his wrists, and they were bleeding. Ah, pitiful, she said. Blood, I do not like it. And she shrank from the sight. But only for a moment. Give me something, somebody, to bandage his wrist with. The officer said, Ah, my general, it is not fitting. Let me bring another to do it. Another? De par le Dieu. You would seek far to find one that can do it better than I, for I learned it long ago among both men and beasts, and I can tie better than those that did this. If I had tied him, the ropes had not cut his flesh. The man looked on, silent, while he was being bandaged, stealing a furtive glance at Joan's face occasionally, such as an animal might that is receiving a kindness from an unexpected quarter and is trying to reconcile the act with its source. All the staff had forgotten the huzzahing army drifting by in its rolling clouds of dust to crane their necks and watch the bandaging as if it was the most interesting and absorbing novelty there ever was. There, said Joan at last, pleased with her success. Another could have done it no better, not as well, I think. Tell me, what is it you did? Tell me all. The giant said, It was this way, my angel. My mother died. Then my three little children, one after the other, all in two years. It was the famine. Others feared so. It was God's will. I saw them die. I had that grace, and I buried them. Then my poor wife's fate was come. I begged for leave to go to her, she who was so dear to me, she who was all that I had. I begged on my knees, but they would not let me. Could I let her die friendless and alone? Could I let her die believing I would not come? Would she let me die and she not come, with her feet free to do it if she would, and no cost upon it but only her life? Ah, she would come. She would come through fire. So I went. I saw her. She died in my arms. I buried her. Then the army was gone. I had trouble to overtake it, but my legs are long and there are many hours in the day. I overtook it last night. Joan said musingly, as if she were thinking aloud, It sounds true. If true, it were no great harm to suspend the law this one time. Anyone would say that. It may not be true. But if it is true... She turned suddenly to the man and said, 
I would see your eyes. Look up. The eyes of the two met. And Joan said to the officer next to her, This man is pardoned. Good day, you may go. Then she said to the soldier, Did you know it was death to come back to the army? Yes, he said, I knew it. Then why did you do it? The man said quite simply, Because it was death. She was all that I had. There was nothing left to love. Ah, yes, there was. France. The children of France have always their mother. They cannot be left with nothing to love. You shall live, and you shall serve France. I will serve you. You shall fight for France. I will fight for you. You shall be France's soldier. I will be your soldier. You shall give all your heart to France. I will give all my heart to you, and all my soul, if I have one, and all my strength, which is great, for I was dead, and I'm alive again. I had nothing to live for, but now I have. You are France for me. You are my France, and I will have no other. Joan smiled and was touched and pleased at the man's grave enthusiasm, solemn enthusiasm, one could call it, for the manner of it was deeper than mere gravity. And she said, Well, it shall be as you will. What are you called? The man answered with unsmiling simplicity. They call me the dwarf, but I think it's more in jest than otherwise. It made Joan laugh, and she said, It has something of that look, truly. What is the office of that vast axe? The soldier replied with the same gravity, which must have been born to him. It sat upon him so naturally. It is to persuade persons to respect France. Joan laughed again and said, Have you given many lessons? Ah, indeed, yes, many. The students behaved afterwards? Yes, it made them quiet, quite pleasant and quiet. I should think it would happen so. Would you like to be my man-at-arms? Orderly, sentinel, or something like that? If I may. Then you shall. You shall have proper armor, and you shall go on teaching your art. Take one of those horses there, and follow the staff when we move. That is how we came by the dwarf, and a good fellow he was. No one could be more faithful than he, and he was a devil when he turned himself loose with his axe. To the dwarf, Joan was France, the spirit of France made flesh. He never got away from that idea that he had started with, and God knows it was the true one. To the dwarf, Joan was our country embodied our country made visible flesh cast in gracious form. When she stood before others, they saw Joan of Arc, but he saw France. So, 
That is the story of one of the greatest soldiers that St. Joan of Arc had. You can see in him and in St. Joan of Arc as well, the influence of good passions guided toward virtue, toward service, toward sacrifice of self and patriotism. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please make sure to share it with your friends. Please also follow us in your preferred platform. And if you can, leave a review on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. Hope to see you next time. May God bless your day.